Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. I've got another fantastic world champion on the show today. Before we get to her, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. And it's Audible, one of the leading providers of audiobooks in the world. That's what we love to do on this show. We like to learn from the best and you can do that on your iPhone, Kindle, Android or MP3 player. All you've got to do is get Audible and you can listen to audiobooks wherever you go. Do you know where I do it? In the gym. I listen to an audiobook. On the train, on the bus, walking down the high street, all over the place I am listening to audiobooks and learning from the very best like we do here on the best in the world with Richard Parr. And because you're a smart person and you've decided to listen to this week's episode, the kind people at Audible are giving you the chance to download an audiobook for free, for nothing. The chance to learn from the very best for nothing. A bit like what we do on the best in the world with Richard Parr. You get to learn for nothing. It's downloaded every week on a Wednesday. You learn for free. And with Audible, you can learn whenever you like. But with them, they are offering a 30-day free trial to check out their service. Trust me, it's very good. I use it myself. I wouldn't be mentioning it if I wasn't using it myself. It's a product I use every single day. So you should too. You can download a free audiobook and try their service for 30 days. All you've got to do, it's very easy. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best i'll say that one more time audibletrial.com forward slash best for your free audiobook download you'd be silly if you didn't do it now sticking with serious business i can tell you about this week's guest it is the former 10,000 meters world champion Liz McColgan. She also went on to win the New York City Marathon, the Tokyo Marathon, and hold on, we're not done there yet, the London Marathon as well. That was back in 1996, you may remember that. She also won an Olympic silver medal. And one of the things she tells me on the show is how at the time she was so disappointed, but now that she's had the chance to look back on her career, she 
appreciates what she achieved there so much more. And of course, we're heading in to the Olympic Games this week. So it's really interesting to hear about how everything's going, what went through her mind when she went to her first Olympics. And of course, her daughter Ailish is competing in the Summer Games. So we'll get to hear how she continues to train her daughter, even though she's living very far away from her in Doha, Qatar, a place I know very well. I lived there for six years. And Liz tells me about how she's been fine and living there for the last three years and how you train in the extreme heat, and some of the other pros and cons of living in the Middle East. So it's really interesting to hear from Liz McColgan on that. And then she gives other interesting bits of information from diet to nutrition to pre-race rituals to post-race recovery techniques. Again, like many of our great guests on this show, you hear some really fascinating information which you can use if you're an athlete, a sports star, or an aspiring sports star, or just to help you in your everyday life. There are things you can learn from Liz McColgan, just like you can from some of the other sports stars we've had on the show. We've had some fantastic Olympians on the show before. Etienne Stott, Ellen Hoog. These are people you can really learn from. All you've got to do is go back on iTunes, subscribe, download, listen. Please rate and review. I've got the begging bowl out right now. Please rate and review if you like any of the podcasts, any of the show, because by rating and reviewing, you help boost us up in iTunes. And the higher we are in iTunes, the more people that listen, the more people that listen, the more great guests we can get on the show. It's simple maths. You don't need a degree in maths with finance like me. It's simple maths. So if you could do me that favor, I'd really appreciate it. Please rate and review on iTunes and there's all many other ways you can get in contact with me if there's anything you want to tell me that you like or you don't like about the show contact me on Twitter at Richard underscore par or go to the website richardparr.net there's a contact page get in touch let's have a little bit of communication well rather than me talking to you let's hear from Liz McColgan she is the best in the world the Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Liz McColgan, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. You're in a part of the world I know very well, Qatar. How long have you been there and how are you finding it? Um, hi, yeah. Um, we've been here for just coming over three years. Um, so we're into our fourth year now. And um, it's challenging. It's a different part of the world with different ways of living, different uh, laws for living. And um, it's just challenging um, to be trying to do the work that I do here. But in saying that, um, it's very rewarding. Um, you know, I'm, I've set up like uh, my own athletics clubs here and uh, it's amazing, you know, to even find the gems that I have here, you know, uh, kids that are more than capable of running but never given the opportunity to run so um you know so although it's a challenging place to living uh the rewards uh just make it worthwhile and uh, very very enjoyable to be here and working how prepared were you when you went there of what to expect? I remember when I first went there in 2008, I had no idea. I, I didn't know if they had running water, shops or anything. <laughs> and they've obviously got those things. But what, yeah. what did you know about the country before you went? And, and what surprised you since you've been there? 
you know, I didn't really research an awful lot about the country, to be honest. Um, obviously, it's a Muslim country, so I kind of knew the, the laws on um, alcohol and um, dress and things like that. So that didn't really bother me. But um, I think I wasn't prepared for the uh, intense heat. It is really, really hot. It's like going into an oven whenever you open your door uh, and there's no let up of it. So... Um, everything's very high uh, air conditioned, so you know no matter where you go, you're either roasting hot or chilled to the bone. So you know, uh, got used to that really quickly. Um, I think for me, the the shock was not being quite so prepared for um, the lack of uh, support for girls in sport. Um, you know, it's still you know Qatar Doha is really only developed over the last twenty five years, and even just up to 10 years ago, it wasn't nearly as developed as what it is now. So it's probably one of the fastest growing cities in the world. It's obviously one of the richest. And I think that imbalance of just how quick it's grown has had quite a negative effect on things like what we have in, uh, back home in the UK, like grassroots level sports. They just don't have that here. So when you come over... Um, there's absolutely no structure or in place to support development of sport. And um, I think that that's what I find really challenging and what I wasn't prepared for. I mean, when you come over, they have the best you know, facilities available. Um, a lot of them are empty. And you have very, very over-qualified over uh, physiologists, physiotherapists, um, all dealing with children who have never had the proper input to actually develop into a sport. So they tend to like go into a school, try to talent ID, but only look for the the ilk of a child that looks like a sports person and not necessarily look at the other elements that might or different traits that might make a, a child good at sport. Are there any chance it could get any better? Are there any developments going on now at all? Or is it going to stay like it is? No, I think that, you know, again, it's, it's such a, uh, a fastly developing country that I think, um, you know, everything's been put into the infrastructure of the country. And I think that once all the infrastructure is up in place, hopefully the next step is to actually go and look at the grassroots level of the sport and how to develop their own sporting heroes um, and I think that there are a lot of opportunities um, and a lot of talent within Doha um, but it's just not nurtured in the right way just yet but I think that you know once all the you know the roads are like they're still building roads they're still building you know the infrastructure of the city as such so um, you know hopefully at one stage you know that will sort of be fulfilled and um, then they can concentrate on you know how to develop the youth and to have a healthier, happier nation, really. And you mentioned the heat, but also the you have the month of Ramadan. How can you um, continue to train while that's going on? What what kind of things do you do? <laughs> yeah, it's very very difficult during Ramadan month. But you know we are here in a Muslim country and we respect all the traditions that go with that. So um, during Ramadan, we're not allowed to drink in public. Um, you know, you've got to cover, uh, you know, your shoulders, your knees, and we just respect that. And if we want to continue keeping fit and healthy, then we find the best solution for that. So what we tended to do is during Ramadan, we changed all our training times to the evening. 
so that um, you know the people that were exercising could you know drink whilst um, uh, while the, the the fast was broken really. So you know you just you just respect the the laws and rules of the country that you live in and you adapt. So that's just what we do. So it's a bit difficult because um, during Ramadan months it does get extremely hot. It's really, really humid as well. And so it's difficult to train, but you, again, you adapt your training to allow the body systems to cool um, and you just don't overheat. Uh, you know, so we, we, we just are very careful in the way that we plan our programs. Mm. And while you're in Doha, your daughter Eilish has been back in the UK and and training for the Olympics. Uh, how uh, I believe you continue to uh, coach her and train her, but from afar, are there any apps you use, and how hard or difficult is that for you? No, it's it's really good for me because um, obviously I'm Eilish's mother, and I've coached Eilish since she was twelve years of age, so I kind of know her completely inside and out but the good thing about Ailish and um, because of the the you know I've, I've been away for the last sort of uh, four years um, and because of Ailish she's, she's really really good at giving feedback probably to this, the, the point of too much feedback you know I know everything about Ailish's day um, how she feels what her heart rates are when we work to programs um, we do everything to um, specific heart rate zones so that I know that she's not overdoing it. And as I say, her feedback is amazing. You know, she tells me exactly, you know, how the legs are feeling, how her breathing was, how she felt the session. And, um, you know, we're really on a really good wavelength as to um, how to, you know, deliver the programme and how she reacts to that programme. So, um, you know, when you're working with distance between you, um, you do need to have a lot of trust in what the coach has given you. And um, obviously I need to um, have a, a lot of trust in the athlete, knowing that they will do exactly what we've told, uh, you know, what I've written down. And um, if they're honest with the feedback and, and uh, it, it, you're able to adjust the programme as to what that athlete needs. So it works really, really well. Um, you know, we've not had a problem with that. Um, she's had two years of, like... Um, really really bad injury I didn't run for 18 months and even even during that time even the cross training program which was quite a difficult one to work out because of the injuries that he sustained um it was very difficult you know that that's that's the I would say that's the only downside to it is when things aren't going particularly well and the athlete's a bit down and a bit depressed it's really really hard to keep reinforcing and to um you know keep them on the right path because the distance between you but um you know as I say I think like uh I know her so well now that I can you know read her well and try to support her as best as I can and you know she's also uh, has training camps here now so she comes out sort of and trains in the heat and uh, I honestly believe that if she hadn't come out in January um, there's no way she would be in the position that she is now and being able to run and being on the team in Rio. So, you know, um, uh, although the, the weather's really hot and humid here, it does have a part to play in fitness and um, the stresses and strains that the body goes through in this extreme heat, I think, is uh, equivalent to being at altitude. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of benefits. So she was here, she's been here on like three camps now already and um, it, it just works. We make it work. Mm. Uh, you mentioned there about when athletes are down and depressed and feeling low. 
what would you do to get out of that slump when you were competing, when you were feeling down and depressed? How would you turn that upside down? Um, it's very, very difficult when you're injured and um, you feel, you know, you actually feel uh, the world's against you and you're never going to get back running. I mean, I've had um, various times in my career where I was told, oh, you'll never run again. But I think that an athlete, if they're honest, they have that drive within them that, you know, you know deep down whether you can do it or not. Um, for me personally, my last operation, I knew that my foot would never allow me to do the training that I needed to do. So, you know, you, you kind of know the balance yourself as to what your body is capable of doing and what it's not. And I think that, you know, as an athlete, you do have that inner drive to succeed. You have a bit of a stubbornness about you uh, if you're an endurance runner. I don't think I've met any endurance runner that doesn't have a bit of a stubborn streak in them. That sort of, I'm not going to give up kind of attitude. And for me personally, um, I just wasn't ready to, to give it in, you know, and, and, you know, I struggled back probably twice in my career where I don't think a lot of other people would have made it back with the, the injuries that I had and the time out that I had. But um, there was just something within myself that I knew I wasn't ready to hang my spikes up and, um, you know, I was just determined to find the way to get back. And, you know, I kind of clawed my way back twice, um, especially the year that I won London, um, the injury that I had, you know, I went to four different people and they said, uh, four different surgeons and they said, no, you'll never make it back, you know, then your knee's gone. And it was up to me to try and find that one person that said, no, 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 we can help you and get you back, which I did, luckily for me. Uh, I found a guy called Jared Hartman and I went over to America and based myself there and I was getting uh, treatment on my knee really about six hours a day, sitting on a table, getting specific works done um, and after eight months, it eventually came back and I was able to get into marathon training and came out and won London Marathon. So, you know, it's all about the drive within the person, what the injury is, getting the right team around you to you know, to build you up again. And the hardest part is just believing that, you know, you can get back and do it and, um, and that you want to get back and do it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. We've got more coming up with Liz in just a moment. I just want to tell you again about Audible. That is this week's sponsor. For you, the listener of The Best in the World with Richard Parr, you can get a free 30-day trial of their product and a free audiobook download. All you've got to do is go to W www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. I said that a little bit fast, didn't I? Sorry, people. Sorry, peeps. But it's audibletrial.com forward slash best. I've just listened to another audio book. I've just finished it. It's So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson, talking about how the culture of shaming has increased through social media, through Twitter, and how it's become part of our society and the negative aspects that it's having on our society. It's a very good book. It's a very interesting listen or read if you want to actually buy the book. I recommend the book as well, but I like to listen on audiobooks. And so I think this is a very good one from John Ronson, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Perhaps that could be your free audiobook download on Audible, go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's get back to the best in the world with Liz McColgan. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. You gave birth to Eilish. Well, you you didn't have the end of the 1990 season uh, because you were pregnant and then you came back in 1991 and you had a storming year that year when you became world champion. I believe you won your first marathon. Uh, what were you doing? Were you doing any fitness at all while you were pregnant? And, and what made you so good after that break? Because some people would think that when you're being pregnant, that when you return, you might not be back to form. But you came back even better. What what, what were you doing? Yeah, um, after... The, the reason I got pregnant was because um, I wasn't enjoying my running. I wasn't enjoying the coaching that I was getting. Um, I felt that, you know, I just lost the the, the drive to win. Um, I, I really wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And so I decided it was time to have a child. Um, I and When I made that decision, I had made that decision on the fact that I was retiring from athletics. I wasn't going to make the comeback that, you know... Um, at the time, there was no other woman who had had a child, say, and come back and, and been, you know, better than what they were um, before they had the child. So, you know, there was nothing in the in the decision to get pregnant to have Eilish that made me want to be the better runner. Um, it wasn't about my running. It was about me personally just not being happy and wanting to have a family and things like that. So, um and what happened was um, I've, I've ran, you know, every day since I was like 12, well, 11 years of age. And um, 
So all during the pregnancy, I continued to, to run. I didn't train. I didn't put a pair of spikes on. I didn't go down to the track. But I think what happened with me was um, when I did feel pregnant, when I did get pregnant, I didn't know I was pregnant, so I was preparing for a marathon, so I was running like 110 miles a week, um, four months pregnant, and the reason that um, you know I went to the doctors was I, I didn't have any morning sickness, I didn't have any signs that I was pregnant, but I started to get like um, like a breathing problem, it, it was like I was getting out of breath, um, and when I went to the doctors, I said, oh, could you be pregnant? I was like, no, I'm not pregnant. And when they did the test, you know, I was over four months pregnant. So I was well on into the pregnancy before I even knew it. And then because I just felt so good, I, I just ran every day. I ran anything up like an hour a day. I just went out and ran even right up until I think it was the day before I had the Alicia, I was out running. And um, I think for me personally, the break that I had in that sort of six-month period away from the pressure of training, the pressure of racing, um, it just rekindled my passion for um, run again. And um, I'd had Eilish, and then uh, I just, you know, I think I had I'd just given birth, and then um, I think it was like two days later, I went for my first run, which wasn't the nicest thing to do, but um, I just felt the love for my running come back really really quickly and I think because I was happy because I had a baby as well you know the sort of like the longing for a family was gone I'd got my little girl and I just was in a better place mentally again and I just felt yeah I want to get back running but I didn't want to get back running to um to do anything spectacular but I think just the mental break away from the pressures that I had from you know all the managers and you know and the, the you need to get out there and race and win it just gave me like a renewed um passion for what I was doing again and I just um went out running and every day I just got stronger and stronger and stronger and I mean I ran my first race in the states um six and a half weeks after I had Eilish and I won sort of an international 5k and you know things just went from there I, I just really was in a better place was happy got on with my training and then within nine, I think 12 weeks I won a bronze medal at the World Cross Country and then nine months later I was world champion but um, you know I, I think that it's really important that um, your body's so used to exercise that me even going for you know a sort of 45 an hour run is like a normal person going for like a three or four mile walk so you know I didn't I didn't train excessively hard through the pregnancy um, once I knew I was pregnant, but when I had Eilish, you know, I really, really pushed the boundaries, and um, as I say, I was just energised to go on and do better and bigger things, really. And can you describe that day of when you became world champion, of, of what you did up, up coming up to the race? Did you change your pre race ritual at all or was it what you've always done and maybe just tell our listeners what normally involved it in in your pre-race routine um I, I i didn't really change an awful lot i i will say that i was very consistent in my training um i i knew my event so i did specifics for um 10k um i did some pretty amazing sessions i think but the they were just consistent. You know, I, I had a, a good spell of sort of eight months where 
Um, I just trained really, really hard. Um, yeah, well, with one race specifically in mind, you know, I, you know, I went into a lot of other races knowing that I had, you know, a hundred miles in my legs and trying to run a fifteen hundred meters and running fifteen hundred meters in like four seven four five. Um, you, you, you know, I, I, you know, I, I just dreamed about that one race. And to be honest, um, when I went into the World Championships. I was confident that no one else in the world had trained as hard as me for or prepared meticulously for it uh, than what I did, and um, I, you know, obviously it paid off. Um, I knew it was going to be in hot, humid conditions, so we upstitched, took or uh, took Ailish with us, and um, we went to Gainesville, Florida, based ourselves uh, where everyone else was going to altitude. Um, we based ourselves in hot, humid climates. You know, I was doing really really brutal sessions at like 95 percent humidity you know 86 degrees heat you know i was running at the hottest most humid times and um losing sort of 3k g's in sweat just in one session um but it prepared me and if you look at the the world championships i was probably the only european that probably finished that race and you know, I, when I finished, I wasn't as distressed as a lot of other people because, you know, I, I'd went and did the homework and uh, prepared well for it. Mm, working very smart there. And then later in 91, you won your first marathon in New York. Uh, did you realise you could do it? Were you really <laughs> confident from the world championships? No, there's a bit of a story about that one. Um when I had won the World Championships, I got uh, about sort of a week later, um, there was a press conference in New York for the New York Marathon, and Fred LeBeau had actually called me, and he said, uh, Liz, we've just had, like, I, I, had no, I had no intentions of doing a marathon. It wasn't even in my radar to do one. And Fred called me and he said, Liz, we've just had a, we've just had a, a media, um, and uh, we had Rosa Mota and... Um, uh, Lisa and Daniki, the two challenges for the ladies' race, and they were asked the question, you know, there's a young Scottish girl who's just won the 10,000 metres in Tokyo, do you ever think she would be a good marathon runner? And both of them turned around and said no, that they didn't think I could be a good marathon runner because I waste too much energy on the road because I'm a track runner. So he actually said to me, do you want to come and race the girls and prove them wrong? And it was like only five and a half weeks and um, I just said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I didn't really go into the marathon with the proper training, but obviously, you know, I was a high miles 10K girl. Um, I, you know, I was running 110, 115 miles a week, so I knew that I could do the distance. But um, so within that sort of five-week period, I just took my training. You know, I slowed the reps down, did a lot more of them, did a couple of long runs, not not massively because I knew that, you know, it was too near the race to, to go in and, you know, do lots of 20-mile runs and whatever. But, um, you know, I, I just prepared for the race as a 10K runner um, and just bulked it up a bit on the reps. And um, I went in and bo- beat both of them. So, you know, that that was the story <laughs> behind New York. I didn't really have much of a, you know, a planning for it. I didn't overthink it. I just went and did it. And, um you know, luckily for me, for the type of runner that I am, I'm an endurance athlete anyway, um, it went really well for me. That'll teach them for doubting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And and what would normally be your recovery routine after a marathon? Um, do you know, back in the day when I ran, there wasn't an awful lot of science, uh, you know, behind the sport really, um, and I didn't have. Um, you know, I didn't have the lottery funding that the kids have got today. And, you know, I didn't have the best physios. I didn't have, you know, the psychologists and the nutritionists and all this sort of thing. You know, we just went out and ran. And, um, you know, for me, um, he, I had uh, met a guy called Jer Hartman. And um, Jer actually lived with me for four years in my house. And he was my therapist. And he did a lot of really deep tissue work and stretching and so my routine was pretty much sort of four or five times a, a week. I would be on the therapy bed getting treatment. So I was really into recovery in a big way. Um, we did the ice baths, um, not every day, but, um, you know, uh, I was very up on my nutrition as to what I eat after I ran. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of did probably the things that the kids are getting told right, but without really you know, the, the, the qualified people behind saying what to do. We kind of, you know, had a routine that we stuck to and worked to. And um, I, I really do believe in um, really deep tissue work. Um, and I think that that was, you know, the, th the success behind me. Um, not only that, obviously, that's what I did in my career, but um, Jer uh, went on to work the exact same way with Sonia Sullivan, He's worked with Kelly Holmes, um, you know, so that routine that we had was a, quite a successful recovery routine. Mm. You mentioned food there. What type of foods were you eating? <laughs> um, I was a stickler for um, really, really good diet. I didn't have any um, rubbish in my diet. You know, I didn't eat chocolate, I didn't eat cakes, didn't eat, uh, you know, um, I was very, very... Uh, as I went on in my sport, I got very, very, um, I would say, over the top of good nutrition. Um, I eat a lot of porridge, a lot of big potatoes, lots of fruit, uh, vegetables. Um, I wasn't um, a big, you know, I didn't eat meat. Um, you know, my diet was very much aimed at, for me, for running. So everything was about nutrition, uh, getting the right nutrition in so that I could perform and then having the right nutrition after, so the recovery, so that I recovered quickly. So um, I was very, very um, strong on my nutrition. Um, I had a very, very, very good diet. Um, but as I say, I didn't, I didn't eat meat, so that wasn't the, the I don't, you know, I, I would, I would tell my athletes, yeah, to eat meat. Um, that was probably my one thing that I didn't do, but. Um, when I, I got diagnosed with asthma um, in, eight, in 87, I think it was, um, I changed my diet slightly and, um, you know, I was eating an awful lot of oily fish and things like that to um, help the alternation of the blood and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I had a really, really, really good diet, very high in fish uh, and porridge porridge was my saving grace I had a, a tin of porridge that was uh, written in five languages on how to cook it and it traveled the world with me because I knew like, um, if I went to a country where you know they had like sauces or anything on the food 
and um, I would be very reluctant to eat it in case it gave me, you know, an upset tummy or whatever. So I would eat porridge, um, you know, twice, three times a day. Um, so, you know, that was a good uh, energy food that I used to carry around with me. Mm, that's interesting I've actually just started having porridge every morning in fact gluten free porridge I've been on a gluten and dairy free diet just to get a little bit fitter Um, uh, you mentioned there are a lot of developments uh, over the years what do you know now that you wish you'd known uh, when you were competing Um, I wish I uh, had known more about altitude training because I think that um, when I went to altitude, it didn't particularly work well with me, and it wasn't until after I retired that I found out that my blood composition was slower than most for changing. So whenever I went to altitude, I kind of always hit it wrong. I didn't feel good on the days that I was supposed to feel good. Um, so I think that for me personally, um, you know, as an endurance runner, there's so much information out there now and there's so much more tools to the trade um, that even me as an athlete, um, I think I would have benefited from um, from the knowledge that I've got now. But at the end of the day, that knowledge makes me a better coach. So, you know, I'm in a better position to pass that information on to the athletes that I work with. Um, and I think... For me personally, as an athlete, I was very, very hard on myself. I never enjoyed, I never gave myself the opportunity to enjoy my wins because I was always on to the next race and to the next race to get better, get faster. Um, and I never actually took the, you know, took my foot off the, the pedal to actually uh, embrace the the major wins that I, I had. And um, I think that now I always enforce that with the athletes that I coach now that, you know, you train so hard. So when you do get the success, you know, just take the time to, to breathe it in and enjoy it because, you know, tomorrow it could be gone. And that's the sort of downside to our sport. Um, so I, I, I would say that, you know, that's one thing, one trait as a person, as an athlete, um, I would have changed. Um, I trained really, really hard. Um you know, maybe I didn't need to push the boundaries as, as as far as what I did. But I think at the end of the day, if you went and changed everything that I'd done, would I have won the medals that I had won? I probably don't think so. So, you know, that's probably, if anything, the only things that I would look back and say, yeah, maybe a little bit of regret. What I found on this show with a lot of the athletes I've spoken to is they've all become very good at time management because they're always thinking about training or when they were younger studying as well. Are you good at time management? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a sticker for anybody that's late. Um, you know, uh, I'm a very much a watch girl. You know, even when I was running, you know, I was always timing things. Um, and I'm, I'm a stickler for discipline because I think that. Um, in athletics, you've got to be disciplined, you know, and that means you've got to be organised. You've got to get your, you know, your race kit ready for your race, so that you're not running about trying to find things the next day. When you go and training, you've got to make sure you've got your recovery drinks with you, you've got your spikes with you, you've got your dry top to put on, you know. So I, I was a big stickler for discipline, and I've always been a disciplined person. So um, yeah, I, yeah, I think you need to be organised and disciplined to be successful in this business, definitely. And we're nearly at the Rio Olympics and 
why don't you just tell our listeners what your first experience of the Olympics um, was like? Were you able to kind of take in the atmosphere and everything going on, or were you just solely focused on your work and your running? Yeah, I think that, um, obviously my first Olympics was 88 in Seoul, and um, I was a medal contender. Um, so when, you, when you're in it and you've got a potential of being a medalist, your your whole persona is not about going and being part of the team. You know, you, you don't really get the opportunity to enjoy the Olympic experience. Um, you know, like, for instance, I didn't go to the opening ceremony because, you know, my race was on in a couple of days' time and, you know, I didn't want to be tired. And um, I went into the village a bit later so that, you know, what you find is because you're at Olympics, there's all sports and athletics is usually the last sport to start. And so you get, you know, the swimmers that have all been successful or unsuccessful, whatever, but, you know, they're finished. So they're partying and enjoying the Olympic experience and the, the village can be quite noisy. So, you know, because you're a medal contender, you know, I, I would stay out of the village as long as possible to make sure that I got my sleep properly and nothing was interrupting uh, you know, my focus on what I had to do. And um, what you find too is when you're a medical contender, the media want a bit of you. So, like, you know, you would always be called to do press conferences and things. And, you know, that's the last thing that you want to do when you're really focused on your race. So, my first experience probably wasn't um, what most would experience. Um, because the village was really, really noisy, I, I moved out. Um, I went in about a week before and it was too noisy, I couldn't sleep, so I had to try and find a hotel and all the hotels were booked, so I ended up going into um, a Japanese hotel, which was like a, uh, it was a Japanese bed, so it was like uh, a mattress on the floor and um, it was just like a little box room, so I actually slept on my own um, for you know the two days prior to it, just so that I could get you know, the proper rest that I needed during the day and whatever. So, you know, a lot of athletes, um, they tend to need to do what's best for them. And um, so I think in 88, I missed the whole Olympic experience because I was so focused on trying to get the, the medal. Um, I thought I was good enough and trained hard enough to get the gold medal. But unfortunately, um, I led pretty much the whole way and got out sprinted over the last 200 from Olga Bondarenko. And I ended up getting a silver in my first Olympics. So, um it was a, when I got that, I was very, very disappointed. I thought I'd let everybody down. Um, it was not my happiest medal to get. Um, and I think because I felt I'd let everybody down, I kind of like blanked that I even got a medal. You know, I didn't really share the win with anybody or with the family. Um, when I went home, I just put the medal away in a drawer and I, I never put it beside all my other medals. And it was really, it wasn't until um, Paul Radcliffe um, in Atlanta when um, Paul was on the marathon and she was obviously favourite to win and she had a really, really bad race. And, you know, she went from in the lead to second to third and then she dropped out and you've seen a picture of her, like, uh, mm. crying on the side of the road. And it wasn't until that moment in Atlanta that... Uh, that I turned around and I thought, you know what, you know, her dreams were shattered and she's so upset, you know, she's not even got a medal. And there's me, you know, like, got a silver medal and I felt that I let the nation down. And I actually went and, you know, 
got my medal out and put it back in the, the medal cabinet with all the other medals and then I thought you know I, I should be proud of it rather than being disappointed with it and um, you know and that was the first you know it wasn't until later that I actually appreciated the fact that you know my first Olympics I got a silver medal um, but yeah that's what that's what my first experience was. Mm, that's an amazing story it, it sounds like the village is a bit like university halls when it, everyone's uh doing their exams and those that have finished and then you've got the ones who have still got to do it and they're all partying yeah it, it yeah. sounds like quite the co-ed experience yeah. well, it's difficult to balance it because you know you've got to think too like you know all the other sports although they're on earlier they've put in a lot of hard work for to get there as well so you know they're enjoying the experience their hard work's over they can relax have a little bit of a break and but you know they're not worried about the other sports that haven't even started so it's a, it's a hard balance to keep uh, you know that that whole village in a in a equilibrium that's really good for competition especially when you know some sports start finishing and um, it's so it's fine at the start because you know everyone's getting ready for the competition but it's, it's different sports doing you know like finishing a week before the athletics even start and it's like oh <laughs> but anyway I think everybody has to deal with it and um, hopefully respect you know people are happy and other ones are still nervous mm. will Ailish be in the village in Rio or will she be in a separate hotel have you made any recommendations for her no um, Ailish will be uh, going into the village I think Ailish is five days before a race she's she's leaving Fontenot there's a UK based camp in Fontenot Altitude um, we use Altitude with Ailish she responds really really well to it um, so you know her programs all been designed around being kept at altitude for as long as possible. So she will fly in. I think Ailsa will probably be one of the last of the team members to go into the the village. Well, I wish her all the best at the Olympics, uh, Liz. Thank you so much for this interview. Just before we go, could you maybe tell our listeners how they can continue to follow what you're up to, perhaps with a Twitter address or any yeah. other forms of social media or anything else you'd like to promote on the show that would be wonderful yeah well we have a website we've got doaathleticclub.com which is our athletics um, clubs and then um, I'm on Twitter as just Liz McCorgan just sign up and follow what we do wonderful I follow it already and I look forward to seeing what you're up to and I hope Elish does really well at the Olympics and Liz McCorgan thank you for being the best in the world thank you very much Thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks so much to Liz for being on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr, episode 24. We had a fantastic month in July. Record download figures for the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing, for downloading, and telling your friends about it because it really, really helps. So, thank you so much. And there are still other great episodes which you may not have heard. Perhaps you want to hear from our first ever guest, Chester Williams. Of course, we've got the Paralympics coming up soon. Perhaps you want to hear from Alfonso Cunningham a former Paralympics champion. He's got a fascinating story there from Jamaica. Perhaps you want to hear about the cliff diving superstar, Gary Hunt. They're all on iTunes. You can download. They're all on richardparr.net. Please have a listen. Tell your friends. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Richard underscore Parr or on the website richardparr.net. 
It's going to be a very exciting Olympic Games coming up. Stay tuned to everything that's going on the TV. This is what so many people work their whole lives towards, to be the very best. And I wish everyone at the Olympic Games the best of luck. Some of them don't need it because they have worked their, I don't know if I can say butts, I'm going to say butts off to get there. So good luck to everyone going. For those of you who are there enjoying it, enjoy it. For those of you I know who are working there, work hard. But appreciate also just how lucky you are to be there. I covered the 2012 Games and it was a phenomenal spectacle, as I'm sure these games will be. So good luck to everyone there. Enjoy the games, everybody. Enjoy the summer for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. It's going to be a nice one in August. I'll be back with another world-class athlete on the podcast next week. Stay tuned to my Twitter to find out who that will be. It will be out next Wednesday as usual. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Take care. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 